The podcast for the inquisitive diver. Hey there, dive buddies, and welcome to the show. Now, as scuba divers, we all know that it is inherently important that we look after the environment in which we live and venture to explore, whether that be on land or at sea, and indeed beneath its surface. I would further suggest that tourism is possibly the world-leading industry when it comes to recognising that importance and is a front-runner for reducing any impact we have as humans, even more so in biosensitive locations. Today, I am elated to be talking with a man who is not only in the tourism industry, he's the custodian of one of the most beautiful locations on Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Lady Elliot Island is a 100-acre coral cay at the southernmost point of the GBR, and 120 kilometres offshore from Harvey Bay. Needless to say, she's pretty special. Peter Gash has devoted over 30 years of his life to servicing and protecting the island. He has received many awards for his commitment to ecotourism and his objectives are to preserve the GBR's beauty whilst making it accessible to as many people as possible in an eco-savvy way. So, um, Peter, Lady Elliot Island, um, I think... In our previous discussions, and I've mentioned it a few times now on the podcast to regular listeners so will remember, that when I first came to Australia, um, albeit I knew there was a lot of diving over here, I wasn't really too sure on the variety of or various locations where you can dive. Um, effectively, you can dive absolutely anywhere over here, uh, but there are so many special locations that it's it's hard to understand and, and grab a real concept of, of what you can really um, do in Australia. And I think um, your little spot is is right up there, isn't it? Yeah, mate, we're very, very fortunate at Lady Elliot because it's really, its geographic location stands it out. You know, the Great Barrier Reef is a big lagoon. It's a big platform, you know, if you go and look at it. David Attenborough did a fantastic three-part series on it and it's got a a really good computer-generated image showing you how the, the, the platform was exposed and about 10,000 years ago the sea level rose, came up over the top of the lagoon, over the edge of the continental shelf and then flooded it. So this massive area of 340,000-odd square kilometres um, is about 30 metres deep. What's that, about you know, 30, 35 yards mm. deep, I guess, in, in the, the other language. And, and so it lends itself tremendously... To, to snorkeling and diving, but Lady Hill it's specifically so because it's so far south, it's right out on the outer edge of that platform, so it's not far from the drop-off where it drops to over a 1,000 metres, so therefore we get these magnificent ocean currents coming up off the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and then they're wrapping around Lady Elliot and they're bringing all these nutrients and all the upwellings, bringing all this, this food up, I guess you'd call it, and that it, it attracts such a biodiversity, so much from tiny little fish right up to magnificent whales, mantas, you know, from one side of yeah. the scale to the other. And, you know, as that upwelling compresses around the island, it compresses those plankton into tight lines. And so, you know, whether you just want to walk off the beach with a snorkel and you're 70 or 80 years of age, and we've got a bloke who just sent me a message the other day. He's 95, and he's promising me this is his last trip. <laughs> he wants me to come and see him, and he walks off the beach and snorkels that bloke. Yeah. He's amazing. Or whether you're three years old and you want to do the same thing, you can just walk off the beach in a metre of water. You know, it, it lends itself to that. And, and any boat ride, anywhere where you go out by boat to, snor to snorkel mm. or dive, is never more than five minutes. It's all very handy. It's all very close. So... 
it's, it's extraordinary. The place is extraordinary. It needs to be protected and preserved, and that's, that's our whole mission yeah, in mind. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've had the place since, was it 2005? Yeah, we took the lease on in 2005, my family and, and a couple of good friends. But prior to that, we serviced it with our aircraft fleet, initially from the Gold Coast, which is about, oh, about 250 miles, 400 kilometres away, but also from Harvey Bay and Bundy. We serviced it for about 10 mm. years prior to that. So we've been looking after Lady Elliot in, in one shape or form since around about 1995. So, yeah, in, you know, in, in excess of that 30-odd years. And prior to that, for 10 years from the mid-1980s, we serviced Lady Musgrave Island, which is our nearest neighbour just 20 miles away. But we did it with airplanes that had floats. Always airplanes because Lady Musgrave and Lady Elliot Island are so far out at sea, that geographic special location makes them a bit far to go by boat. They're a long way mm. in the boat ride. You fly out there and, and here you are, just the most amazing place. I can't imagine what the flight out and the flight back is like as well. Because what, what, what kind oh. of air, aircraft are you using? It like Cessna sized? Yeah, we use Cessna mm. caravans, the latest, the new Cessna caravans. They're, they're 14 seaters and they're very fast. They do about 180 knots with roughly 200-odd miles per hour. But we also still have a couple of the Haviland Twin Otters, which are 20-seaters. Because the island's small and short, the runway's short, 650 metres, so you've got to have a special aeroplane that can land on mm. a short runway. And it's a coral runway because it's a, the island is a coral cay. It's all organic. It's not a rock island. A lot of people imagine, you know, a barrier reef island, you know, with palm trees swaying mm. over the beach. That's Hamilton Island or Hayman Island or Daydream Island. They're spectacularly beautiful islands, even Great Keppel Island. There's pl plenty of them that people would have heard of. Lizard Island, Dunk Island. These are beautiful yeah. places. And they're all specifically magnificent gems, but they're continental islands, meaning they're rock islands, and they're, they're attached. They're a part of the continental shelf with what Australia is mm. and sits upon. Whereas Lady Elliot Island is a coral cay. It's a, it's a dynamic organism. It's... it's, 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 it's um, it's, it's been created by living organisms, coral polyps, zooxanthellae algae and birds and the bird mm. poop, believe it or not. To be blunt about it, it's the coral, the coral polyp, its excreta, its waste, its poop, whatever word you want to choose, creates an exoskeleton that lives in a symbiotic relationship with an algae called zooxanthellae. They create the Great Barrier. They are the building block of that 2,000-kilometre-long living thing that can be seen from space, the only living thing on the planet seen from space. They, they create that, but, but like all living things, they live and they die, and that's a natural process. And big wave action, and that's what we get right out on the outer edge, which is where it is, big wave action smashes the living coral and it breaks regularly as it gets too long. After so many years, it'll break and then it'll wash up on top of its other living coral and then it washes up and sits up out of the water at, at low tide. So then the birds go, wow, there's a parking spot. <laughs> so they park there and they fish from there. And, of course, as, if they're sitting there, you know what else they're doing. They're pooping there. They're bringing seeds. And so they start the cycle. And the bird poop, which is basically nitrogen and phosphorus, mixes with the calcium carbonate of the, of the coral polyp. You've got the three elements of cement. You get a bit of rain. You give it a wave action. You've made a big, hard concrete yeah. base. And basically that's how Lady Elliot and all these other amazing coral caves are formed. Mm. So if you get to fly there, you get to see it from the air. You get to smell it because it's covered in birds and it's just it's extraordinary. Yeah. And 
and to see the reef from the air, I mean, all the photos you see are predominantly reef photos, uh, sorry, aerial photos, because they, it is so beautiful, the colours, the, the texture. The yeah, shape. I noticed on, on the website there, you've got that um, cracking image from 1975, and then um, the more recent image, I can't remember the year now, was it in the last five, ten years, something like that? Yeah, in the last five or six years, I think. So yeah, it's and so it's got that yeah. sliding rule. And just to explain to people who are listening, it's got that, that thing you can click on and slide left and right, and it shows you the difference between that the 1970s and now, and you can see how much amazing growth has occurred. Um, it yes. just looks absolutely marvellous. So to fill in why that has happened that way, pre-European settlement... For the for the because remember what we said that, that ten thousand years ago, the island yeah. didn't exist because the water was down over the edge of the shelf. We've had a couple of glacial periods or interglacial periods where there's been certain ice ages, temp changes, melting. The sea level has risen, not in a lineal fashion, but it's risen and then stabilised and risen and stabilised. So during those periods, as it's risen, because of the the living coral crushing and dying, the birds and so on, it's created an island. And it's gone up with sea level rise. And, and it can only happen with that, that um, what comes from the animals, what comes from the organisms, that organic substance, but also from the vegetation that grows, the plants. So it grows and grows and climbs. And the island has climbed. And, and over that 10,000-odd years, it's risen, on average, three millimetres a year. And the corals have grown around it and the vegetation's grown. And then it stabilised about 3,000 years ago, roughly, three or three and a half thousand years ago. It stabilised and developed a beautiful forest, Personia, Argusia, Pandanus, all the natural vegetation that's developed out on that southern end, way out at sea, where we're about 80 kilometres, about a, what's that, about 50 miles from the mainland. So it's right on that drop-off edge. and had this beautiful forest, untouched forest. It was untouched in many ways, including by our, our First Nations native people. Because it was so far away, it was inaccessible. So no one had ever gone there. But in the in the eighteen around eighteen ten, eighteen twenty, it was first discovered, seen by Europeans as they sailed past and as wow, look at that place. Then then the first industry started to form. Not long after that there was a Betch de Mir or the sea cucumber, sea slug. People came from Asia and they took them away and that was unsustainable. Lasted a matter of weeks and they'd picked them up. But then um, agriculture happened in Australia and the Australian continent didn't lend itself to agriculture the way Europe has. And so our farming techniques very quickly struggled and needed to have fertiliser. So they went looking for forms of fertiliser and they found it on Lady Elliot. And so for 10 years, from the 1860s, 1862 through until 19, uh, sorry, to 1870, they had teams of people out there with wheelbarrows, shovels and bags. And they cut the trees down and they shoveled all the guano. And there was up to two metres, two yards roughly, of this beautiful, rich soil that was made up of bird poop and tree mulch and they shoveled it all away over 10 years stripped it dropped the island the island shrunk by about 15 meters in height and and all the trees were gone and all the guano was gone and then just before they left they thought we'll we'll we better think about the shipwreck yeah. sailors of the future let's leave some goats <laughs> here for them to eat <laughs> <laughs> you just shake your head when you think about some things that have been done in the past but look it's easy for us to laugh and be wise now but at the time that's what they thought was smart so they put the goats there and of course the poor old goats had to eat something didn't they so anytime anything green popped up the goats ate it 
So Lady Elliot stayed at windswept barren rock for almost 100 years. And so about 1969, 1970, um, a young man came out there, had an airplane, a lot of passion, a lot of enthusiasm. His name was Don Adams, and he wanted to create a, uh, a tourist resort there of sorts. And he could see that it needed trees to be planted. He could, it, it had been blowing away. The goats had just been shot out in the last five to ten years. There was a lighthouse there and lighthouse keepers. They'd gotten rid of the goats, but there was very little vegetation. So Don started a revegetation program. And God bless him, he picked the right trees. He picked casuarinas, and, and they were the only things that would grow because it was, it was almost like growing in concrete. There was very little loose soil. And, of course, that attracted the birds back. And so that process has gone on from Don, there was John French and his family, then there was Bevan Whitaker, and then there was ourselves. So, so since 1970, with that slide picture you're talking yeah. about to now, there's been these tourist operators, and this is where tourism's been such an amazing help for a place like Lady Elliot. We couldn't, none of us could have done it without the tourists coming out there, spending their money, us taking them snorkelling and diving and showing them the island and then having some money left, hopefully, and some time and energy to start planting trees and revegetating it and, and just basically taking a windswept barren rock, a degraded and denuded mine site, and putting it back to what's now considered one of the jewels in the crown of the Great Barrier Reef. And it's our mission, it's our life's mission to leave it better than we found it. And we've certainly done that. We've got a long way to go because we want to make it as, as close to what nature intended it to be 200 years ago as we can. It's a, it's a marvellous story and you're right in the middle of it. Um, and seeing as you're right in the middle of it, we've got to bear in mind that you know, you, you've not always been in this industry. You just mentioned that you were servicing the island with aircraft. What's that, what's that background there? Yes. Are you ex-military or something like that? No, that's a great question. And no, look, I had my first flight in an airplane when I was only seven years old. My dad had a flying lesson and, and I got out of the airplane and I knew at seven that I was going to be a pilot one day. I had no idea and no opportunity for the resource to do it. So never learnt to fly for a long time. And I was involved in a lot of different things, including agriculture and farming. And I tried all different methods of farming, worked for different people, um, including machinery, driving, tractors, trucks horses, all sorts of stuff, did a lot of different things. And what I saw as I travelled around Australia and worked in different places was I was starting to get fearful for what was happening to our environment, mm. believe it or not, and, and we're talking because I'm in my 60s now, and we're talking in my, my early teens and my, my late teens, I could see that things were happening that shouldn't be happening. Climate change wasn't even a word that I heard of, maybe others did, and I had the good fortune of talking to Prince Charles recently prior to him becoming our oh, wow. now king. And he and I both had a similar realisation that there was something wrong. He, he's, he's honesty to me, and it was amazing. He said, Pete, the advantage I had was I was able to talk to a lot of these people that you wouldn't have had the chance to. And he saw, and he put that in his amazing book called Harmony. And if any of your listeners ever get a chance, it's a book well worth reading. Amazing individual. He's, he's our King Charles. Anyhow, I saw that things were wrong. That thing, well, things weren't so much wrong, but things weren't going the right way. We were, we were heading on a trajectory that was, was going to get us into trouble. And we're intelligent, us human beings, as a, as a species. There's no doubt about that. So I thought, well, we've, we've all been gifted with, with, a, with the ability to think things out, and I'm going to go and find a way to do better. And so anyway, as I went through that process, I, I surprisingly found myself on a motorcycle, a motocross bike, a dirt bike. 
and I was able to do it. And long story short, I ended up being fully sponsored by Team Yamaha, and I raced motocross for six really? years. Can you believe? <laughs> yeah, before I before I even had a ticket to fly an aeroplane, I was doing that. And again, to me, this is this is why every one of us should 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 I guess celebrate our history. Because it was those things that kept teaching me lessons. And some of the things I learnt there about efficiency, time and motion study. Like if you can't get to the next corner faster than the guy beside you, you're not going to stay yeah. sponsored long. So I had to be efficient, had to be, you know, had to work out how to do things well and quickly with minimum waste. And so I learnt a lot of stuff in that six years. But the best thing I learnt was my sponsor took me on a trip in a boat. I ended up at Lady Elliot Island and I ended up at Lady Musgrave Island. I went snorkelling there and it's like, wow, how lucky is this? How beautiful is this place? But what's happened to it? It's been stripped. It's been mined. And, and, and it took my breath away. And I just knew and I just knew that oh, I had a calling. I had something I had to do there. And I wasn't far from finishing. In my mind, I knew I wasn't going to race forever. And I had a young lady with me at the time. Well, she wasn't actually with me. She was on another boat, but we were hanging out a bit and saying good day. We were friends. And she had a dive. She was a scuba diver at the age of 15, whereas I was at that time 20 and wasn't a scuba diver, but I'd snorkeled a bit. And she, we went down diving and snorkeling. Well, she went down diving and I went snorkeling at Lady Elliot and I saw her on the bottom and I went down and she flashed the thing. In, in, we're talking 1980. Things yeah. were different then. You didn't have hockey regs and stuff. Put the reg in my mouth and I had a little bit of a blow at it and thought, wow, this is amazing. I've got to do this. But, I, but it also enabled me to learn about the place and give me a different perspective. Anyway, that young lady and I have been married for 39 years. I was going to say, this is a lead into the story of falling in love with your dive instructor, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I fell in love with the place and the lady, and yeah, my dive instructing lady is my beautiful wife, the mother of, of Amy and Chloe, who you've now yeah. met both of, and and they're both qualified divers also. So we became, you know, Julie and I became dive dive tragics, passionate yeah. about our diving, but also scuba diving because, uh, sorry, snorkeling should I say? Because Lady Elliot doesn't, you don't need a tank on your back to go and enjoy it. You can just enjoy it, as I said, at the age of ninety five in two meters of water or even a metre of water. So anyway, Julie and I, we fell in love with it and each other, I'm proud to say. And um, But we went away and I was still fully contracted with Yamaha at the time. But a year went past and we decided two things. One is we're going to get married. And two is I was going to quit racing and I was going to work out where we were going to go. And so we were looking at airplanes and the environment and the island. But, I mean, who could have thought at such a tender young age that we would ever have got to where we got? And certainly we didn't expect it. We certainly never thought we'd ever be yeah. the leaseholders or, or anywhere in, in where we were making major decisions. What we thought was we'll just work hard and we'll throw ourselves at this and we'll do the best we can for ourselves, for our future and for the location because the location needed help and we could see that. So I went and I learned how to fly. And I flew around the country in different places, mostly in seaplanes, because at the time Lady Elliot had a previous leaseholder. He had a resort. He had his own airplanes and an airstrip. So I wasn't, at that point in time, going to be likely to be welcomed. So we went to Lady Musgrave Island. I did my first 10-year apprenticeship, I call it, flying seaplanes into there and learning about, in those days, snorkeling only because you couldn't dive and then fly easily we did it and we had approval but it had to be specific so it was mostly we'd take guests internationals we'd take them up there and show them lady musgrave 
and um, I kept flying over Elliot and looking out the window and thinking, oh, I've, got to, I've got to do something with that place because the guy that had it, lovely bloke, real hard-working, amazing individual, but again, from that old school that you can't change things, son. We run generators, we do this that way, we do it that way, and, and I'm thinking we've got to do it another way, and I'm seeing this island as a platform, as a place that we can use to educate ourselves and educate others in how we humans can minimise our footprint, still live in harmony with nature and leave it better than we found it. So I persisted with that man and by 95, 96 he finally relented and allowed me to bring my aeroplanes there. We literally shook hands on an agreement that in 2005 he would be uh, 80 and I would be 45 and we would buy the lease off him and basically in a short circle, yeah. that's what happened. <laughs> we did our second 10-year apprenticeship with Lady Elliot, and then we, my wife and I and our family and friends took on the lease of Lady Elliot Island. So it was a long, long road and a lot of long sleepless nights, a lot of debt, a lot of yeah. fear, which is what you get when you, st you know, start playing with capital-intensive equipment like airplanes. You've got to be bold. You've got to walk into the bank and you've got to be prepared to have it, you know, put your... Put your self yeah. on the line you know and so we did that but you've also got to be prepared to work and now in my mid-60s people say Pete when are you going to stop doing 90 hour weeks and I say well maybe one day but I've still got too much to do and I've still got the energy so while it's there and the fire's burning I'm going to keep throwing Hell at yeah. it you know. No, that's a rem remarkable story and like you say I mean you, you're just not stopping <laughs> are you? Let's, 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 let's no mate no and uh, Absolutely. And why would you? You know, when you're as blessed as we are, as lucky as we are to have such a beautiful place and you can see the fruits of your labour, you can see we've planted a whole bunch of trees. Even Christmas time, when, when Donny Adams built the airstrip, he built two. He built a main runway and he built a cross runway. And when everyone started to plant the trees and we've continued with this process, we didn't plant obviously on the main runny, runway, but neither did we plant on the cross runway. But when the new lighthouse got built, and there's a nice new solar-powered one there now, it, it sort of precluded easy use of the short cross runway. So we all stopped using it. But it was still kept as a mowed, grassed area. So just before Christmas, Amy and I, my oldest daughter, we were just walking along and she said, and this is what I love about you young people, they just keep prodding you and pricking you. And she said, Dad, we've planted 10,000 trees here. Why haven't we planted them on the old runway? We don't use it as a runway anymore. And I looked and I thought... God, that was pretty simple, wasn't it? I don't know why we haven't. They just don't know why we haven't. Let's do it. So I went and I saw Jim, who's our, he, who runs our revegetation program, and Chelsea, who, who's our environmental manager, and I said, Amy's got this idea. Why don't we plant the old runway out? What a great idea. Okay, what do we need for it? We just need access for the vehicles to come through. Let's plan it. So we did, and then we had to advise the authority, you know, the reef authority who we work with, because we have a reveg program, and this was a new idea. And all they could say was, Really? You're a commercial private enterprise tourist operator and you want to plant out grass and put trees in? I said, well, that's yeah. what we do. That's what we're here for is to make it better. And they said, we love it. And we love it so much, we're going to help you to fund oh, it. Oh, really? So, yeah. So the more you give, this is one of our sayings, the more you give, particularly to the environment, when you're doing the right thing, the more you give, the more you receive, the more comes back. And so, yeah, I'm really proud of Amy. She saw it. I just couldn't believe it. All these years I hadn't thought of planting it out. And so... It's now, we put those trees in just before Christmas and we've had great rains, so they're going really good. And it's so rewarding, Matt, to walk along and see what was just an idea 
to being, you know, because we've got lots of patchwork of new trees getting planted all around the island as we revegetate this old recovering mine site and to see them at their various levels of development and growth. And after four or five months, you no longer have to irrigate them. They just go. And, and it's almost like nature's racing to try and reward us to say, hey, look, look at what you guys are creating. Look what you've done here. And I want to say thanks. And it's just yeah. awesome. And people come just to see that program. It's, it's mar- another marvellous story. Um, what's, it, what's it like for, um, you know, we're talking about the vegetation and the growth and, the, and, and reintroduction, all that kind of stuff. What's, what's the, um, the environment like as in, is it, 12 months a year you're getting sunshine or do you have you know big storms come through that can be a bit of an issue we're on the queensland coastline latitude 24 which is basically the tropic mm-hmm. of capricorn so it's it's a tropical environment um it's a long way out at sea and it's on the east coast of australia right out there poking out into the coral sea or which is a part of the pacific ocean so we get a lot of wind and a lot of big swells and think about it we said earlier that corals get crushed by waves and wind and they get thrown up on top of the living corals and that creates an island. So without wind and waves, you don't get a Coral yeah. Cay island. And that's what's unique about these. You need the big energy to do it. So we do get a lot of big wind, a lot of big swells, but we got sunshine 300 plus yeah. days of the year and hence we run on solar power, which is one of our first major steps. We have... Um, you know, average our average temperature would be between 22 and 24 degrees Celsius all year round. In the middle of winter, it'll cool down to maybe 10 or 12 at night, but it'll still get up close to 18 or 20 in the daytime. But in summer, we can get it up around 34, 35, occasionally a little bit more, 36 degrees during the day. Um, we do get thunderstorms. Yeah, that's typical Queensland tropical weather. We see thunderstorms and generally... The summer season, you know, from sort of December, January through until March, April, is our wet season. Our big advantage is we're at the southern end of the reef, so we have a lot less cyclone impact. We have had cyclones over the years, but touch wood, we've never had any major cyclone damage of of note. And they've been keeping wind records for over 80 years. And the strongest wind speed so far recorded has been 72 knots. So we're hopeful that that's, we'll never see more than that. But we still get impact from cyclones, big swells. We'll get six or eight metre swells out there and they just smash wow. up the beach and they can sometimes do waterfront damage to the vegetation. But when the island had been stripped, nothing stopped the waves. So the waves actually came up and over mm. onto the island. But now nature's back in balance and so the waves generally lose any energy and so they do no harm to the island if we ever have that so um and we have quick access with airplanes we can get in and out if we're uncomfortable about the weather that really makes a difference you don't have to deal with a swell because you'll have obviously get a swell a long time before and a long time after a cyclone so the airplanes only have to deal with the wind so uh yeah really from a weather perspective we're very blessed we're on the southern end and way out at sea. Water temperature is good. We have no impact from what we call marine stingers. Marine stingers or, you know, the irukandji or the box jellyfish that people have heard about, they're predominantly a, a creature that breeds up in the freshwater creeks on the mainland and then they flush out with the rain. So they're closer to yep. the coastline. So, you know, generally anything up to about 10 or 12, maybe 15 miles offshore, you rarely see them beyond that. We're 50 miles offshore. So we're very blessed. We don't see them at all out there. And because we're south, we haven't had any major impact from 
water warming. We've had some bleaching, but I think bleaching has always been a natural mm. part of the cycle. Just I think in recent years that bleaching has, has worsened for various reasons. So Lady Elliot's I've just been a very, very blessed geographical location and position and it's rewarding us for the efforts we're yeah, putting back yeah. into it. I mean, that, referring back to that aerial photo, it looks like there's a, gr a good bit of protection from that coral reef structure that's around you. It's quite a, it extends quite a way off the beach, doesn't it, for the full... Yeah. That's right, yeah. And it tapers down. So from a diver's perspective, it's really easy. When you dive, you can tell how far off the shore you are by yeah. the depth you're at. If you're going down, then you're going away from the island. If you're getting into shallow water, you're coming back up. It's very easy to orient yourself from that perspective. And, and uh, yeah, so it's just a diver's mecca, diver's paradise. And the other thing that the divers get at Lady Elliot is we talked about a couple of sea level change movements, right? So Lady Elliot started to form about 10,000 years ago. And about 6,000 years ago, it stabilised, sea level stabilised. So the island created itself and formed. And so it had trees and it had this hard concrete base and then these big waves. And then eventually they created a big blowhole, a big oh. cave and a series of shelves along the edge. And so the waves would have gone boof up through the blowhole and down and then up came the sea level. So up went the island again. So the blowhole went underwater. So the blowhole is now a mindlessly beautiful diving cave that starts at the top at about 15 metres because sea level rose again in the last 3,000 odd years or, and, and finished about 3,000 years ago and stabilised. So the island's now sitting there and the blowhole, which is out on our eastern side, which is obviously where our biggest weather comes from, and that's what gave it the energy to create the blowhole, you're just, you're just diving along all of a sudden, whoop, here's this hole that's about as, maybe about 8 mm -hmm. metres round it goes from 15 metres deep down to 25, then it makes a 90-degree turn and it goes straight out and it, it exits you on this face in about 28 metres of water and there's always big wow. sharks and things just prowling up and down that face and it's just awesome to come out through that blowhole. It's one of our prime dive so it's, it's, so it's vertical, nowadays, it's much like a chimney? Like a chimney, it goes straight down and then it turns 90 degrees and then it comes horizontally out on a face. And, and, of course, as you know, freediving is really becoming a popular thing these days. And so now we're seeing freedivers go out there and they'll put a line into the blowhole and they'll go down. The good ones can go down and yeah. out of it. Blows me away how they do it. Like, I don't mind holding my <laughs> breath, but that's getting a bit strange. You and me both, buddy. I, I think it's barking mad, but... <laughs> yeah, I think it is too. In 10, 12 metres, I'm happy, but going down to 25 and then going 20-odd metres along and then coming back up, no, you can have that one. <laughs> <laughs> they do have a bloke in there or a person if the Aussie word is a bloke I guess you know that you're living in Australia but they do have a person and for those listeners if you know what I'm talking about it, in Aussie we call a person or a male a bloke they have a bloke down there or a person down there with a, with a tank and a spare reg so if someone's doing that as a freediver and gets into trouble they can jump onto a, a reg and and so they, they, do, they do a lot of risk management when they do that but yeah that's, it's an amazing amazing dive so I love it I go down there and actually He's given away my secret. In the, in the roof of the cave, there's a couple of little places that are sort of indented. So you can go up in there and you can take your reg out of your mouth and you can fill it with air. You can just get just yeah. your head in there with your mask off and you've just got your head in there and, you, and you're down at 20-odd metres and you've got your mask off and you've got your face in this little cave that's just big enough for your head. I'm not too sure if Mr Paddy would be happy seeing me do it. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. That would have to be a bloody big indent there for someone with a noggin my size. <laughs> no, you Take get a spare it in there, tank to fill it. Just be careful you don't. You don't want to scratch the top of it though when you yeah, go in. That's yeah. all. 
So um, would that be your favourite little dive spot by any chance? Um, look, you know what? Lady Lee's got so many beautiful places. People ask me this all the time. Where's your favourite dive site? And, yeah, I love the blowhole and the tubes and Heroes Cave because it runs along this cliff face all along there special. But, you know, when we've got big weather, you can't get near it. So we might not dive the blowhole for a month. And no one's disappointed because whether you dive out at the Lighthouse Bommie, which is a manta cleaning station, so almost always there's mantas down there. You know you know what a manta is, three or four metres across and just swimming around and getting cleaned or coming over. And, and they're so intelligent and so inquisitive that whether you're diving there on the, on the Lighthouse Bommie, and that's our probably our most popular dive site because it's open all the time. It's rare that you can't dive it. Or up on the Severance Wreck, we had a... Uh, a ferro-cement concrete sailing sloop sink out there in the early 1990s. We don't quite know what the guys had on board the sloop, but they were pretty keen not to abandon it until they got out of it what was in there. But anyhow, that's, that's another story. But it's, it's out on the western side as well, and it's a beautiful dive, and it's home for a massive big moray eel and a massive big groper. You've got to be careful poking your head into holes because you never know what's going to come out looking at you. But, but even just a snorkel, I, I get a real buzz out of just putting a snorkel on my back early in the morning and going out into a lagoon where it's only a metre and a half deep or less, depending on the tide, and swimming with little little turtles that are, you know, six or seven hundred mil round or finding octopus in there or tiny little fish just off the beach, come back, have a hot shower and go and have breakfast. Mate, it's, you, you just can't Mate, eat I, the pot. I tell you, as and when we do visit, the missus, you know you'll see me but you won't see the missus she's just going to be out there snorkeling all the time and dive in and then back to snorkeling with me mate (laughs) i'll take her and show her all the good spots there's plenty of them you just never get sick of it you know matt you never get sick of it and and you just never see the same thing twice because it's little lady elliot is a bit i I use this example it's a bit like a small example Mm -hmm. of the reef and it's like a small example of the planet it's, it's all different, you know. It's, it, this place is different to that place, but it all has its own beauty. And if you've got your eyes open and you see it, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable in its biodiversity. It's remarkable in, in its differences. So you're swimming here and you're seeing this and you go, wow, how good is this? And then you go 100 metres up the track or, you know, and you're seeing something totally different. You think, wow, is this the same place? And it might have none of the things you saw back there, but it's got a whole bunch of other stuff that you didn't yeah. expect to see. So that's why... We, we've got people that you know, people that come to me all the time. They know who we are, and, and we're all just we're all friends out there. We see it as a big family, and they'll come and say, "Pete, this is my twenty fifth visit. <laughs> Did you know that? Have I got the record?" And I say, "Well, actually, mate, there's another bloke reckons he's getting close to thirty visits. They just come and come and come, and they see it like their beach home. You know, we feed them, we give them hot water, a good warm bed, you know, hot shower, and and a dive or a snorkel, and and they just love it, and it's just so popular. Our repeat visitation." is awesome it's it's up in the in well above 30 percent of our visitors are repeaters as we call them people who just come back and back i've had so back. many people talk about lady elliot i mean there's, there's been a few on the show i mean jane jenkins she was babbling on about it for for quite some time uh don's been there uh, yeah. lisa lisa um Rebeck, she's been up there a few times and, and she says it's her number one location on earth and she's been a fair few places now diving she loves it Wow, yeah, no, mate, we, we are very blessed, we're very lucky that we have such a beautiful place and, and we love to show it off, but, it, you know, a big part of it is, I guess, yeah. sharing it 
and 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 being open in sharing because there's nothing like sharing and and seeing the smiles on people's faces. I, I'm, I love it. And one of the other things we see a lot of at Lady Elite, because because we're so far away, there's very little internet out there. We've we've got a satellite system, and we've controlled it because our young staff and our young crew really need internet. They're living out there in this day and age. You're just not going to keep them if they haven't got that link. So we have minimal managed internet so a business person can say okay i just need to check my emails once a day yep no problem this is how you can do it so so the point i'm getting to is basically when you're sitting in the dining room or in your room there's no internet so it's a digital detox so we see enormous support from three generations you get grandma and grandpa bringing out their children and bringing out the grandkids the three generations will come out and they just love it because the grandkids, instead of sitting there playing with their devices at dinner time, they're talking grand and gramps. They're telling stories, and the kids are actually going, "Well, this is pretty good fun, actually. I, I wasn't even, I haven't even been on my device for a week, and I've been fun. I've been chasing around after turtles and snails and mantas and sharks and fish. They're running around and just being kids, having fun, running around on the island, seeing all the birds in their nests. Because Lady Elidis, as I said, it's a bird rookery. You got in the season, you've got a couple of hundred thousand birds, and they just live on the ground, totally fearless of people." Because people don't hurt them. People that come there are not there to hurt wildlife. So the wildlife is completely fearless. So the kids are walking up to birds in their nests and seeing little babies like inches from their eyes and it blows them away. And it does exactly what we want. It it turns them into wildlife warriors. It turns them into passionate environmentalists, conservationists. And they go home with an ability, a, a renewed energy and an ability to make a difference. And we tell them, every one of us can make a difference. Every single one of us, whether our circle of influence is just me and the kid next to me, or someone who's fortunate like myself with an island to influence a lot of people, or someone fortunate like you who has a podcast of, of passionate listeners, we, we try to influence as many people as we can to look after this planet, because if we don't, what are our kids and our grandkids and our future generations going to have? We've got to get smarter. We are smarter. I know we can do it. I know there's tons and tons of reasons for hope. we just got to keep reminding yeah, ourselves of yeah. that. And the beauty of that analogy there with the grandkids uh, running around on the beach, uh, you've only said like 20 minutes ago, at one point when you were seven years old, you got your eyes on Lady Elliot. I bet there's a number of those grandkids that have been running around on Lady Elliot have done exactly the same thing and are, are striving for that right now. You're exactly right, Matt. Absolutely, that's what happens. And I love it when people come and say that to me. They'll come and say to me, I came here when I was a kid, and now I'm bringing my kids back, and I'm so proud that we can do it, and thanks for what you're doing with the place. And that inspires me. That's what inspires me to keep going when I hear people. They thank you for your efforts. And so, because it's not about money, you know, one of our sayings is, this is not about making a fortune. This is about making a difference. You know, we have to leave the place better than we found it, and we're, we're working our hardest to do that. When you see the looks on people's faces, no amount of money can yeah. buy that. I mean, obviously, we have to be financially sustainable, because if we're not financially sustainable, we won't have a business for long. We won't be business sustainable, and we won't look after the environment. You know, that's pretty obvious. You know, we love it to be idealistic, but the world's a realistic place, and you've got to live that way. But we run it as a business that pays its way, and, and we're really proud of seeing that. You know, we, we're, with our accommodation, we've only got 44 rooms, 150 beds. We're allowed to have 150 guests in the house at night. We never go near that number. We usually sit around 90 or 100 because that's a good number and we're comfortable at that. And we're highly in demand. We just say no a lot. And I hate saying no, but I can only cope with so many people and I can only make sure that so many people have a good time. There's no good having too many people and and people going home unhappy. So we often get 
said to us by other business people, why don't you put your prices up? Because you could charge a lot more because the demand is there. And I go, well, yeah, we probably could. However, I think back to this little kid that was seven years old that fell in love with the things that have now inspired me to be where I am and think, if, if I couldn't have afforded to get to do these things, if I make it too expensive that the average mum and dad can't bring their kids out there and enjoy it and fall in love with it. That's being unfair. I'm then being too specific, only allowing the wealthy mm. people to come there. It is, to me, is not the right thing to do. So we work really hard at trying to keep a price point that mum and dad, from wherever they might be, can come, can bring the kids at least once a year and inspire them. But also for those who want to spend a bit more money, then we've also got a little bit, little bit up, up market, not flash. It's definitely not the Sheraton, yeah. never going to be. But, you know, we've got a couple of rooms with an air conditioner, for example, just little bits and pieces to make it a little bit more comfortable. And if you're prepared to pay a bit more, then, yeah, we're happy, but we're never going to go away from remaining accessible to what I call the ordinary mm-hmm. bloke, the ordinary family, the mum and dad and the kids need to be able to come out there. And, of course, the school groups, the college groups, the uni groups, we see so many of them come out. And so I try my best to get up there when I can and talk to them and inspire them. You know, my team does it inspire them into making a difference mm. in their lives. Mm. And I think that, you know, as soon as we're talking about monies there, I think the cost is important because what you're doing there has to, like you say, be self-sustainable. And the key part of that being self-sustainable is having your visitors there, which which funds what you want to do. <coughs> um, and those people that are coming, you know, they, they're there to see the the beauty that's, that is the island itself. So the, the, there is a cost. There's no way around that, um, but I've and you come and buy air, so yeah, it's expensive. And, I, and I've, I've I've worked but in yeah I've efficient. worked in remote locations before that are, you know they, they, the price point goes up because of that you know having to fly and all that kind of stuff. However, when you do get to that point of being too expensive, it becomes counterproductive. You you end up yeah. you know you're aiming at the rich people, but if the rich people don't want to come, then you know you start to struggle. So I think. What you're doing and and what you've just said is is, is bang on the money. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we we're certainly being rewarded for our efforts by our guests coming. As I said, we're not getting mm. rich out of it, but we're paying our bills. We've got 120 crew. They all get paid every Friday. They're all well paid. We look after our team. We pay all our bills on time. Um, I'm not going to retire wealthy, but I don't care. My wealth is in the legacy that I'm living today, the things I'm doing, hopefully showing other people how you can do it differently. And, of course, what I hope to leave behind, which is a place that's that's, um, somewhat improved from what we found, you know, and and showing people, mentoring other young people. We employ a lot of young people, mentoring them into, hey, get out and have a go. Do, Do something different. Make a difference. Don't follow the beaten path. Have a go at making a difference because you can make well, a difference. It's working. I mean, we, we are talking because of one of your ex-employees. What's his? There was he Ash, Ash Smith? Yeah, yeah he Ash, messaged yeah, me out Ash, of nowhere. Yeah, yep. You, you need to speak to Peter. You need him on your podcast. Yeah, you know, and wow, and Ash is hats off to job. Ash. Good call, brother. <laughs> Good on you, Ash. Thanks, mate. When you're coming back, we need you to drive <laughs> the boat again. <laughs> He's a diver driver and he's a guy with a whole bunch of energy too and he's just a real dynamo. And and that's what guys like Ash are exactly what (coughs) are attracted to Ladio. Excuse me. Amazing people, passionate people, people that care about beautiful places. And and and, and that's an example. Ash is rewarding us at Lady Elliot because of what he's seen us do. If he didn't believe in what we're doing, he wouldn't have told you about us. He wouldn't have recommended us, you know. It's marvellous. 
Um, 120 staff. I've just got to pick up on that. That's that's a lot of people to look after and feed, mate. <laughs> it is, mate. It is. And when the pandemic broke, at the time that the pandemic broke, we had 110. And so you just, you just have quick maths will tell you that our, our payroll every Friday yeah. was pretty big. And we don't have a rich mum and dad. So it, it has to come in each week and go back out again on Friday. So when it stopped coming in, it was, oh, this is not yeah. going to last very long. How are we going to do this? And you start selling your house or whatever else, even that's not going to last you long with those sort of numbers. So we sat down with the team pretty quickly and we said, okay, how are we going to work this? And they all pulled their, you know, they pulled their belts in as we all did and, and did our best, looked at ways. And then, of course, thankfully, the government came up with JobKeeper. We worked hard at that. We then realised we didn't need as many airplanes as we had at the time, so we're fortunate we managed to move a couple of those out, which were big expenses, which then freed up some capital, which we boldly poured straight back into keeping them all busy, doing seven on, seven off, doing work on the place, trusting, praying that within a couple of months we're going to be back open. So we did all the jobs we needed to do while it was closed that we could normally not do, re-roofed the dining room, modified the kitchen, and the crew were just all pleased. And so when we restarted again in June, July, we still had our 110 nice. people and we're sitting around 120 at the moment. So we've had an amazing support by our team. And, and those people are not all on the island, Matt. You know, you've got to see it's a complex mm. operation. And that's why I've got no hair, mate. You see. <laughs> but I have got a big uh, yeah. new bottle of this. <laughs> but maybe anyhow, so what, they become, you know, you've got pilots. You've got aircraft engineers, you've got reservations people, ladies and gentlemen on the phones making bookings, you've got sales and marketing people, you've got the team on the island, whether you've got boat drivers, dive instructors, you've got maintenance crew keeping the solar power, the desalination, the wastewater working. In the kitchen you've got chefs, kitchen hands, you've got housekeepers, bar attendants, administration, you've got the revegetation team, you know, it, it's a massively complex operation. And um, it just ticks along because every single one of them is committed and passionate, like Ash, that sort of person that care and they're proud to be a part of it and are proud to be playing their part, whether they're with us for three months or three years or in some cases 20 years. We've got a lot of people that have been with us over 10, sometimes 15 or 20 years and pr just proud to be a part of it because, as we say, they don't work for us. Yeah. They work with us. We all work together on yeah. this project. I can't imagine why anybody would want to work for 10, 15, 20 years on a beautiful location like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must be yeah. crazy, eh? <laughs> yeah, and some of I can think of Claude, one of our chefs. He's French, and he, he's the most amazing pastry, pastry chef. And anyway, Claude will tell me every day I'll go up and say, G'day, Claude, what have you cooked us today? Oh, Peter, I had the most amazing snorkel this morning. I saw this and this and this. Or oh, I, had, I was on morning shift, so I'm having a snorkel this afternoon. And that's the sort of people, they want to go snorkeling yeah. every day. They want to see what they're going to see. And they just think themselves lucky to be living and working in such a spectacular location. And I, and I think we're all very lucky yeah, to be able to sure. do it. For sure. Hey, thinking back to way back when you when you took over um what kind of i'm trying to get a picture in my head of, of what it was kind of like then i mean the infrastructure and did you did you go hammer and tong at building new outbuildings or was it a slow process um did you did you did you take the bull by the horns and start legging it well the infrastructure had evolved very slowly from that 69 70 when don adams built mm. the first resort, he built an A-frame and he lived in the A-frame and he cooked in the A-frame and if you came to visit him, you mm -hmm. stayed in a tent. Then slowly he put a few tents up 
And then he put up a dive shop, and it, it was all very rustic, mm. rough, pretty pretty poor quality, but did the job. He had a generator, he had this, and, and then and then they got a better generator, then a slightly better this and a slightly better that. And then Don sold on, and the French family came along, and they did a really good job of putting together quite a decent resort. They put a bunch of accommodation in there. They went, I think they put in... They put they had twelve tents and twenty seven units that were an, an old second hand mine site that they got off a coal mine out in in uh, Blackwater and they brought it out and they assembled it so that gave them decent accommodation and then they put together they had a kitchen they made the kitchen bigger they built an education centre this all evolved you can see it sort of evolved over time and then when Bevan Whitaker came along he just kept it in good shape improved some of the machinery he's a machinery guy. He improved the generators, the desalinators, that sort of stuff. But it was still a real basic place and very rustic, for mm. want of a word. <laughs> and and because the the leaseholder that was there before us had a lease that was terminating in 05 and had no guarantee of a renewal, they were limited with what they were prepared to and wisely weren't going to spend any more than they needed to. So when we took over, it was in really, really yeah. poor condition. You know, the roofs that were rotted out. Because you imagine a, a metal roof covered in birds and, and in the summertime it'll get up to three or four inches yeah. of bird poop on it and freshwater rain and salt and that. So the, the place was in really poor condition. And we knew our first job was to make it safe and usable. So for the first 10 years, all we did was threw money at putting new roofs, windows, doors, fixing, painting, repairing. The You know, the, the timber stumps have a metal strap that goes up to hold the building to the stump, cyclone yeah. bolt. Rotted out, gone. We had to drill them out, put new stump tie-downs in. It was massive, the work. And it was just catching up with, you know, with respect. The previous... They were, we were fortunate in that we got in when things have changed. Maybe it was because of what we did, but... Prior to us, the resort wasn't popular, wasn't mm. well-known. It was a beautiful place, but they didn't have the numbers. When we took over, they were, you know, eight or ten people a night yeah. in the place. You know, as I said, we sit at 90 now, so it's changed a lot. So we spend a lot of money on it, just initially bringing it up to what I considered safe, putting safety switches on all the electrical circuits, because none of the electrical circuits had electrical safety switches, all that type of stuff, which it's easy when you say it quickly, but it takes a lot of time and money and effort way out there to do it and bring the carpenters and the tradesmen, the electricians, mm. the plumbers. So 10 years was spent doing that. But in that first 10 years, our goal was to make a difference and, and to, to change from generators, diesel-burning generators, to mm. solar power. Because A, the generators were burning 550 to 600 litres of diesel every day, which when you add that up was about $300,000 of fuel yeah. a year. And we had to bring it over on the barge from Gladstone, which is 18 hours away. Then we had to store it in tanks, and none of the tanks were bunded at that time mm. when we took over. So we had some serious challenges, and we knew that. So we, we started fixing the buildings, but at the same time we went hell for leather to find a way to get a solar power station. We tried to get the two major power suppliers in Queensland to do it and sell us solar power because it was costing us about $1.20 a kilowatt hour to, to make our power with yeah. diesel generators. And so we were prepared to pay for solar power. And, and, but no one wanted to. They laughed at me and said, you can't do that. So we did it and um, at our expense. And very quickly, we got it down to 50 cents a kilowatt hour, which helped us enormously. And, and, and so now we're down around 20 cents a kilowatt hour because we're making it out of solar. Think, let's, so let's, the resort of... Sorry, I, I'm, I'm an engineer geek here as well. How have you done it? <laughs> 
How have you done it? Because solar, solar the, and so, batteries, and just but the two main companies have said no, you can't do it. But you've gone and done it. Yeah, and because they saw it that islands live on diesel generators. We're talking 2005, 2006. Yeah. Nowadays, they wouldn't say that to you. They'd say, yeah, no problem, we can put a solar yeah. system in there. But all those years ago, and, and it's not that many years really, but, but it, so much has changed in the solar world, you look at it and go, well, of course you'd do that. But back then it wasn't, of course you'd do that. No one had ever really done it quite mm. like we did. But it, one of the things I learnt when I became a pilot was I, I realised I had to become an engineer to keep my aircraft fleet going, so I'm also yeah. an aircraft engineer, just one of the things I studied <laughs> late at night for a lot of years <laughs> to add to my 60 or 80 or 90 hours a week, whatever I might have been doing. But So I understood engineering and I looked and thought, of course we can do it. There's plenty of sunlight out here. How are we going to store it? So we're using batteries to store it and we store it up all day and then yeah. we use it all night. And Yeah, it's been a process and we've had a lot of two steps forward, one step back stuff. But that's the only way you go forward. You've just got to keep hammering at it. So so we built the solar power station in that first 10 years that we were also renovating the resort and bringing it into what I considered was a semi-safe, semi-usable place. Got rid of the diesel burners. So we saved 300000 a year. We'd end up, we saved about two hundred because it was costing us about 100 a year then for our power as we slowly got it yeah. cheaper and cheaper. So we just reinvested that 200 that we weren't going to spend on fuel back into more solar panels so we went from 96 panels to 1100 panels now so now our fuel costs us three or four thousand dollars a month we burn so little and it's a long way from what it was and so the first 10 years was fix the old place up fix it fix it fix it make it you know obviously the key word is safety people's safety is paramount because you cannot have a situation where people are feeling that they're not safe comfortable either in the building or in the water so we had to work on the boats the provision of the service that sort of thing the place was in a different time what i call a different time zone it was just still existing in the 1960s and we were trying to bring it into the 21st century so we did that for 10 years and um that was when we started to get noticed people said wow look at what these people have done so we after 10 years of doing that and planting trees all at our own expense we spent nearly a million of our own funds which came out of trading we didn't have a million sitting in the bank it was whatever was spare in the bank we planted and we did a lot of voluntary stuff and a lot of volunteers helped us by 2015 so many people were saying look at what these people are doing we got to help them so a group called the great barry foundation came out there and saw us and said we we're going to raise some funds we're going to help you what do you need and how you, 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 what you're doing with this vegetation is remarkable. What you're doing with this whole place is remarkable. We want to support you. A lady called Anna Marsden and her team, the Great Barry Foundation, Sir John Schubert, and, and, and the, they just, they backed us. And because we'd put our money where our mouth was, we'd done it first. We didn't ask for help. Yeah. We just did it. And then slowly we got help offered to us, which is what led to our visit in 2018 of Prince Charles, the king. He came in, in April 2018 when he was out here in Australia for the um, opening of the Commonwealth Games. And uh, he came to Australia and his, his brief was, I want to go to the reef, I want to see the place on the reef that takes the most care of and is looking after the environment. And everyone he spoke to, his words to me, where everyone we spoke to, my team spoke to, said, you blokes on Lady Elliot, don't go yeah. anywhere else. So he did, he came. And, and that really, that was when people really went, whoa, this is what, he's where, this little place? You know, tiny little island with 35 staff on there at any given day and you know, maybe 80 or 90 guests and way out at sea. What do you mean? 
but he, he saw our nursery. We had over 10,000 plants in there. He saw the trees and the vegetation we'd already planted. He saw our commitment to the environment. He saw our commitment to our people. And um, he, he, you know, he, he gave us support by virtue of his, his, presence. his being there and his presence. And, um, and, it, and, of course, it was more than us. And, and what I wanted and what, what we saw happen was he supported the whole reef. We, we were already heading in the right direction. We turned the corner and we were heading in the right direction with our revegetation, with our turning around of the challenges, that the resort was in good shape, the reef was recovering, the island was recovering, it had this magnificent forest coming back. It was, it, it, I, I believe he had, because it was only four days after he left Lady Elliot that the largest um, amount of government funding ever was given to the Great Barrier Reef and that was in the form of a $440 million deposit into the Great Barrier Reef Foundation's account to look after the reef. And that was four or five days after Prince Charles left Lady Elliot. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe in miracles. I also believe yeah. in timing, and I, you know, I think something <laughs> happened, let's just say. I think, uh, <laughs> something I think we need to there. give him a, a, an invite to come back now that he's stepped up a gear as well. Because he did, mate. He invite, the, the meeting he had at Lady Elliot, it wasn't just him and I. He brought 28 of Australia's most um, influential CEOs of the largest companies. You name it, they were there. We had BHP, Star Casinos, Microsoft, Virgin, Qantas. We had all these senior people. We had the, the Federal Environment Minister, the State Environment Minister, the, the head of, of, um, of Lend-Lease, um, the Fitzgerald family. All these people were really passionate and they came out and, and he challenged them. He said, look at what this family are doing here. What are yeah. you people doing? What have you, you guys control the biggest companies in this country. What have you done for the reef? And it was, and it, and it was polite, but it was reality. And, and most of those people have already been doing amazing things, but it inspired them to want to do a bit more, you know. So we felt pretty dang chuffed about that, that we'd played a little part in this whole big thing about not just Lady Elliot, but the whole reef and obviously, ultimately the bloody yeah. planet, you know. That's what we're here for. Because without without an atmosphere, without a planet, none of us are going to be right, having exactly. podcasts. Yeah, and it, I mean that's you've just set out a, a perfect example. Because I think in this day and age, we've got so many people that are, that that are totally focused on their income, not only for themselves but for corporations, and and looking towards corporations that are bringing in all those billions and billions of dollars. They want to be put in, or they want to be seen to be doing the right thing for for the globe and for the environment. Well, have a look at Lady Elliot. Have a look at what can be done in a 25, 30-year period. Everyone keeps banging on about, we're going to do this by 2050. We're going to do that by 2050. Well, stop talking about it and just fucking do it. Lady Elliot is the perfect yeah. example of what happens when you do do it. You nailed it, mate, and, and I get a bit frustrated. But I also accept that it was a lot easier for me than it is for a government or a, or a big city because you've got varying competing interests, different things. Oh, we really want – you've probably got plenty of politicians that want to do this, but then they've got others f with various levels of influence that are trying to hold them back for whatever the reason. There's a lot of agendas, mm. as you know. Our agenda was really clear at Lady Elliot. This is the race we're running. This is where we're going. That's what I, I mean. I learned that from riding my bike. I know I'm going from here to there, and I'm getting there as quick as yeah. I can get there, and nothing's going to get in my way. And, and that's what we've done. And so, yeah, we're proud of the fact that within 10 years, we went from burning 600 litres of diesel a day to burning zero. We're 100% renewable. Yeah, sure, we have our days when we've got to burn a bit because it's been overcast. We're not, it's, it's, hard to say, it's hard to say you're totally renewable, 
but we will eventually be to the point where we don't need the diesels. We'll keep them until we're 100% sure of that. But the point is what you said. Yeah, we did it in 10 or 11 years, can be done. So if we can do it, even if the other guys take 20 or 30, they just, you know, they've got their battles like yeah. we all do, but they got to keep fighting it and, and we got to keep supporting them. Because remember, governments are only us. You know, people get the government they deserve. You you got to back the government. You got to support them. We've always worked closely with whatever government, whatever colour shirt they're wearing, and supporting them. And they've always supported us. And and we have an amazingly good relationship with all government authorities because we see it that we're a partnership. I can't do what I do without yeah. their support. And they want to be involved with us because they they genuinely. I, I've not yet met a politician or, or or a bureaucrat that doesn't love what they yeah. see us doing. So they're humans. They're, they're, they're mums and dads. They've got kids and they've got grandkids. So when they see that, it lights up their eyes. So that's another level of our influence is when we're driving politicians and saying, hey, come on, come on, let's all get on this. We'll give you a hand. You give us a hand. When the UNESCO issue was on back in 16 and there was this talk of whether the Great Barrier Reef would be listed or not, the Australian government had these delegates come out to Australia and every single one of them came with me for the day to Lady Elliot. And I just gave it to them black and white. These are the good things that have happened on the reef. These are the not-so-good things that have happened on the reef. Have a look at it for yourself. You're looking at a beautiful mm -hmm. part of the world. But I flew them there from Brisbane, so I showed them the, the positives and negatives of that, and I showed them around the southern end of the reef, and they loved it, and they, they loved the frankness. Yeah, the reef suffers from heat. It suffers from wave action. It suffers from crown of thorn starfish. It su suffers from runoff. But it's not one of those things. It's a combination yeah. of all of those things. That have caused it. I call it the death of a million cuts. Millions of tiny actions have led the reef and the planet to mm. where we are today. It's just going to take millions and tiny actions to get us back, and we all just have to work yeah. together on yeah. that. Well said. Well, next time you get a load of politicians out there, just tell them to focus on uh, getting the nets out as well. Uh, it's getting right under my skin, <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah. Shark I keep tagging the, the relevant yeah, politicians right. to come into the studio and talk about it. None of them do. Uh, I've been blocked yeah. by a couple of them just for tagging them and asking the asking the single question. It's crazy. Yeah. Question. Yeah, yeah. And look, probably most of those people that haven't come probably believe like you do, but again, they're caught between the agenda of lots of different people with mm. different thoughts and their responsibility to safety for the people. And and also, let's be honest. I'm a politician, and I've just made the call, and I'm going to pull yeah. the nets out. Now all of a sudden, little Freddy goes down the beach and he gets eaten by a shark. So mum and dad have now got a lawyer sitting in their pocket saying, come on, we're going to sue him because he made that well, decision. This is, this so our whole system Yeah, but this is why us. I want them to come in. Let's have a, an open and frank conversation here in, in a, you know, somewhere that you're not going to get barraged and victimised uh, and chest poked mm. uh, and just, just see both sides of the story, you know. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very important role. Uh, in, in a discussion we've got to have both sides of the story and at the moment we've only got one. Oh yeah mate yeah we see we see the mess and we look at it from the air we fly up there in the morning and we see the boats coming out clearing up those shark hooks up the east coast and it's like mm. makes you want to be sick you know what's going on down there and you see these magnificent animals that we swim with mm. all the time and we know that you know within reason you know unless something's in, out of balance somewhere they're generally quite yeah. safe to swim with and quite safe to be involved with. But now and again, something happens. But I, I don't think the the response warrants 
what's happening. That's my opinion, mm. but you know, I, I don't know all of the facts. But certainly, I'm with you. I'd like to yeah. see them go on those those nets and yeah. talks. Yeah, I mean, I could go on about it for for hours, but we won't. We'll detract away from Lady Elliot. We won't. Um, let's. In fact, we can move from nets to humpbacks. You get the humpbacks going past you, don't you? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and the east. That's that's to me. That's just a really great story yeah. of hope. You know, like. 200 years ago, we didn't have much oil and coal, so we, as when I say we, the collective us, you know, society, we didn't have that. So we used whale oil and blah, blah, you know what we did, you know, whale bone, we used all that stuff. It was a great product, and we, so we hunted them. And we, at the time, thought that was an endless supply. We hunted them and hunted them and hunted them, and by the 1960s, they were pretty much gone. And here on the east coast of Australia, this is the east coast herd, it had gone from something like 40,000 animals down to potentially less than 1,000. They closed the Tangaluma station in 1965 and there was less than 1,000. When I started flying in the mid-1980s, you rarely saw a whale. But they were, thankfully, nature was hanging on by the skin of its teeth and they were growing at about 10% a year. So from 65 to 85 in that 20 years, they got up to two or 3,000 maybe 4,000, we started to see them from the air, so we started taking people to see them. And we said, you bring in your cannon to shoot the whales, but you're not bringing a, a harpoon cannon, you're bringing a yeah. cannon camera, and you're going to start to change opinion. And we, we, we did a lot. This was long before I actually had Lady Elliot. It was when we were still a tourist operator to Lady Musgrave and other things, and we'd fly people to Harvey Bay and let them go and take mm -hmm. photos of whales and, and take that back and say, hey, show your friends and family what you did, how much enjoyment you had out of seeing these whales try and convince your politicians and there was a lot of Japanese people came and saw us at that time and now as you know I don't have to tell you that the numbers now are up well in excess of 30,000 animals so they come up to the Great Barrier Reef every winter and they come up year around they're either mating or they're reproducing or they're having a calf or they're mating and so the males are doing that bit and the females are doing the other bit either reproducing you know mating or they're having a calf and so we see them there in great numbers. But the whole reef is just the, the joy of it. It doesn't matter whether you're south on Lady Elliot or up in the Sundays or right mm. up there in Cairns on the northern end of the reef, you get enormously exciting whale experiences. They love it. They come into those nice quiet lagoons because that's what the reef is. It's a big lagoon. Remember we started talking about up to 20 or 30 metres deep. The whales love it. They feel protected up there. They feel sheltered. They have their calves. They frolic. They play. You get out on a boat. There's... It's hard to put words to, to, the, to the emotional experience that mm. people get when they get close to an, an amazing humpback well, whale. You know, 40 tonnes, 45 tonnes in, in, yeah. in weight and, you know, 40-odd metres long. Even, even just the, the noise of them under the water. I mean, I experienced it in South Africa, you know, on a dive and the South African visibility is crap, so I couldn't see them. Um, but just, just hearing them in the distance. And I, I kind of reminisced on that a couple of days ago as a, a mate of mine, Jai Kennedy, he's, he's up on the um, on the GBR as part of the Crown of Thorns team. And he's he's doing it. You do him? You do know Jai? I, th I think I do. I'm pretty sure I've met him around with the Crown of Thorns. Super, there, super yeah. nice guy. Yeah. Lovely yeah, fella. Yeah. But he was on the, um, you know, those boards that they're using to pull divers through the water and just yep. do coral checks. And the, just the, the noise were just spectacular, absolutely stunning. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, on that subject, you know, I always say to people, in the whale season, which is sort of May, June through until mm. October on the southern end of the reef where we are, that's about when you'll see them, either going north or playing around or heading back south. 
you'll certainly hear them yeah. when you go snorkeling. Almost every time you go snorkel or diving, you're going to hear yeah. whales singing. It's crazy. And you'll almost certainly see them from the beach. And if you're on the boat, you'll see them from the boat. And now and again, and it's more and more because the population's growing, you'll be in the water snorkeling and a whale will come over and do some people watching. <laughs> Actually, come over. And people, when they're in there diving, they've got whales going right over their head or come up. And it's, you just go on our website or on our social media, our Facebook or yeah. our Instagram, have a look at some of the photos of the experiences our divers and our snorkelers yeah. have had there. And it's just crazy. But what, where I'm getting to is the other day I was in our house because we have – Lady Elliot has an old historic lighthouse that was put there 100 years ago, 150 years ago now. Actually, the houses are 100, the building, the lighthouse yeah. was 150. I was in the house, which is about 50 metres from the beach. I heard this <laughs> really loud noise. I don't know how that's going to go with your podcast, mate, anyway. It sounded like a bloody elephant. I'd been in Africa and I love Africa. I said to well, my wife, that's a bloody elephant. Can't be. And it's yeah. got to be a whale. So I bolted over to the beach. And, and if you know whales, you know what I mean when I talk about uh -huh. a heat run. It was a, it was a pod of males on a heat run and they were grunting and snorting. And when they're really active, they're up a lot because they're trying to get oxygen because they're banging yeah. out power. And they were grunting. It was just crazy how loud it was. And all these people are standing on the beach saying, what is this? And they're 50 metres from the shore and they're having a heat oh, run. Just out there, man. It just—I just thought I thought I've seen everything, and now I'm watching a, ma a yeah. whale heat run, and I could hear it from my house. <laughs> like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get that in uh, in Narrenburn and Sydney. No, mate, no. It's just one of the rewards for all my years and long nights, oh, yeah. I hope. <laughs> it's, it's those it's those kind of things that just stick with you for life, though. You're never going to forget that, and oh, neither are those people on the beach. Nah. Oh, yeah, no, mate. And, and my wife came running over behind me, Julie, and she, she said, wow, I've never heard that. I said, we've heard it. We were in Tonga and we saw heat runs a lot and we've seen it from boats, but never thought I would see it from the beach and hear it from the house. It was like, wow. And so it just tells me, you know, the reasons for hope. And there's another one. The whale population's up around 40,000. They're just living their normal yeah. life again. They're just doing what whales do. And we're just interacting and seeing and observing and, I get excited thinking about all the other species that if we give them a chance, are going yeah, to do the same yeah. thing. Now, you, um, a nice little lead in there. You do um, get uh, mantas there a lot, don't you? You mentioned the, the cleaning station earlier on. Um, and forgive me, I've forgotten the name of it, but you, you've got a, some, some form of manta project there as well. You just nailed it. You got the name. It's called Project Manta. It's spearheaded by a beautiful lady called yeah. Kathy Townsend, um, Dr. Kathy Townsend. She started when she was with the University of Queensland back in 2005. Um, just remarkable lady and remarkable team of people she surrounded mm -hmm. herself with. And she, like me now, um, is now trying to train the younger people to look after it. So Project Manta, to put it in simple terms, is a project that started back in you know the mid 2000s just after we took over Kath came and asked me would we support them because like most of these uni projects they didn't have a whole lot of funding so we thought oh, we can't really afford this we, but I think the words I used was we can't yeah. afford not to because the whales at that time weren't protected we knew very little about them and, and me looking at them from a scuba tank or a snorkel was only going to give them really limited help, like limited help. But some scientists getting involved were going to take a whole lot of difference. And we thought there was maybe 50 or 60 mantas hung around Lady Elliot. So Cathy and her team set, set forth on the Project Manta and they started to document how many. Or Because if you take a photo under their belly, you see their, what they call their fingerprint or their footprint. The shape, the pattern on their belly is different on every animal. 
and I know Kath's up over a thousand animals they filmed on Lady Elliot now, they've taken photos of, including Inspector Clouseau. He's the most rare manta on the planet because he's, to the best of our knowledge, he's the only one that's pink oh, okay. on his belly. Yeah, melanistic pink, I believe, is the word she uses. Black on the top, yeah. pink on the bottom. Most mantas are black on the top that's and right. white on the bottom. So just another one of those rewards, I think, for looking after the manta. So what Kath and her team have done is every year they've studied them, they've learned about them, they've banged on the science door, they've banged on the council's door, the, the, the government's door, looking for funding. They created a film about it, and that won a, an award. Some, I think it might have, just correct me here, but Kath will tell me I was wrong here, but it was, I think it was the Cairns Film Festival. There was a film festival of sorts, and Kath had this amazing movie about what they'd been doing, and it got really great publicity, which... Publicity breeds more publicity, breeds more success, brings more support. So she's had enormous support with that, and we're looking like we're just getting some more support to renew the project for another three years, okay. um, which we're excited about because now she's trying to find out the really key thing is where are these animals pupping? Where are they mm. having their little baby mantas? And to the best of our knowledge, no one's ever filmed that. It ha- uh, Yeah, the, the, the birthing's not been filmed, but I did notice maybe two and a half, three years ago now, for the first time ever, it was uh, mating was caught on on film. I okay. think that might have been so, over Indonesia, Nusa Penida, something like that. So, mantas are amazing, amazingly intelligent animals, and um, through the process of Project Manta, Paddy Dive put out a the four or five best places in the world to swim and see mantas. And the first one they mentioned, so I, I assume that means we were number one, yeah. was Lady Elliot. So we, we were pretty chuffed about <laughs> that. And that came as a result of the Project Manta highlighting the strength of what was there. If they had just asked me, I said, oh, I think there's 50, maybe 100 mantas. You get, look, I'll take you out for a snorkel or a dive. We'll see mm. if we can show you one. But when the science got involved and did it in a scientific manner, then we were able to get facts and with facts, we can make a difference. And so, you know, that's the key thing that, that I've learned off Kathy and her team is, you know, science can go hand in hand with, a, with an entrepreneur like me, a, a, a conservationist like me. I, I, I'm not a scientist, but I, I'm a driver. I want to make yeah. stuff happen. But I also, we, we need Kath's skills. We all need each other's mm. different skills to work collaboratively to make a difference. And, and we couldn't have done what we've done without people like her and her team and so many other amazing teams, you know, our reveg team, Jim and John and Annie, those people that really make a difference with what's going yeah. on. Out I, I love that word you use, collaborate. Collaboration in my book is number one in everything that we need to do. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, Matt. It's such a key word. And look, I'll be honest, like all young people, when I was a young bloke, I didn't probably yeah. understand that and see it. And I'm still, I still consider myself a young bloke because I must be because I'm still learning and that's a key thing I'm learning is that the more you collaborate, the more you work together, the more you will achieve. And you support each other and you see each other's differences and you recognise that we're not always going to see eye to eye. I'm going to see it a bit differently. If we can all be level-headed and sit down and talk about it, we'll generally find the solution to how do we fix this problem or how's it best dealt with and, and you know, and on we go. And then we look at it and go, wow, look at together mm-hmm. what we've achieved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, ecotourism. Obviously, uh, a lot of our subject here is about um, how and how you as would you would you say your location? Would you call yourself a company as well? Um, how, yeah, we're a proprietary yeah. company. So how 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 else are you reducing your carbon footprint? I'm trying to think about. Because another arm of me is that I've got a, a, a travel company, as you know, 
for, for diving. And, and more and more over the last few years, apart from COVID times, more and more um, people that, that want to book, one of the main questions they ask is about how the operator that they're looking at going and staying with is reducing their impact on the local environment. And we've already alluded to the fact or pointed out that, that you guys are, you know, bloody good at what you do. Um, but there's a, I think there's still a number of elements there that we've probably not touched on, which are vitally important in, in how you go about your everyday routines. Oh, yeah, Matt, there's so much. And, I mean, we haven't got enough time on this podcast, to be honest with you, but I'll try and touch on it quickly. You've heard me talk about our solar power. That's reduced our mm. use of diesel which has reduced our, our risk of having it stored out there. You know, greenhouse gas emissions way down, you know, 98% mm. down. Storage has reduced. The risk of bringing it out there in the barges is reduced, as well as the cost. Obviously, that's a yeah. really big one, saving us a lot of money, but it's saving our environment. But that then enables us, because we're in a, 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 a UNESCO-listed World Heritage National Park on Lady It's a green, total green zone, no fishing, no spearing, no taking. Can't do anything that's not approved. We can't drink water off the roof because the roof's covered yeah. in bird poop. We can't drill a hole in the island and take the water out of there because that's a, a very, very delicately balanced ecosystem and it's got a fine layer of water that feeds the tree. So where do we get our water from? We have to desalinate it. It's too mm. far to bring it, so we desalinate it. And desalination, as you know, is a very power-hungry method. Well, we get it from the sun yeah. for free because our our solar power drives our diesel. We make about 30,000 litres of fresh water from the sun direct every day. 30,000 a day? Love it. Bloody A day. Hell. A day. Yeah. So we hold about 400,000 litres. We've got about 12 or 14 yeah. days of spare. So if the system breaks, we've got that much time to fix it or else we're yeah. sending everyone home because without water, you're not doing anything else. But then the water goes into the shower and the toilet and the cooking and the washing, and then it's got to be treated. You can't just, we're going to send it. You just don't flush it down the plug. It's got to go into a wastewater yeah. treatment plant. And it has to be treated to an AE standard so it can be used and, and managed in a UNESCO-listed World yeah. Heritage Marine Park. So we treat it through a wastewater treatment plant. When we took over, the water was at a C standard. Not very good, but it was approved. And that's what I mean about the old resort and the old way of doing things and the new one. We wanted A. We actually wanted A+. Plus. And the difference between A and A plus is UV sterilisation. You're going to love this in a minute. I'll get to it. But So to get to our A standard, we had to build a new system. And we looked and looked and they were all a million dollars. We didn't have a million. And we talked and we asked and we found a bloke and we collaborated and we built a system that cost us about 300000 and put our water out at A standard. We thought we were pretty chuffed. We couldn't get to A plus. We didn't have enough spare power using our D cell to run the UV and then it was so simple. We're sitting there having a cup of tea. A few of the blokes were all talking and someone said, UV, doesn't that come mm -hmm. from the sun? Isn't there a way we can get it for free from the sun? So down the refuse centre, we went and found an old big wild water tank. And so after the water had finished all its other treatment, it, we put it into there and, and we cut the top out of the tank and we let the sun shine in all day. So the standard improved. And we thought, how can we make it better? So then we put a solar panel and a solar-powered pump in the bottom of it and then a heap of that alcinite plastic, like corrugated roofing, oh, yeah, clear yeah. plastic. And when the sun's out, the pump runs and the water cycles up and it gets really closely UV sterilised and it oxygenates it and water goes out A+. It's considered some of the best treated water on the reef. Cost me about a third of what I was getting quoted, and I'm making the best water I could possibly make. So then we just irrigate it, irrigate it out of the airstrip and into our revegetation program, 
And we monitor it, we test it every day, we send it away for an external test every month, we have to report it and the condition and the quality mm. of the water. Just so, and we've got teams of, in our maintenance team, a couple of the guys have been to school and learned about running a wastewater treatment plant, and they love it. They specialise in it because it's a, it's a living yeah. organism. A wastewater treatment plant is all these little bugs doing their job, you know, and when you study it, it's crazy. Learn the So are they, <laughs> when they take all the rubbish out and the crap and all that malarkey, are you reusing that again? Is it being turned into fertiliser or are you getting rid of it offshore? With the new system, there's very little. We just, when we had the old system, every three months we had to dig the malarkey yeah. out, as you call it. And let me tell you, no one was fighting to dig the <laughs> malarkey out. And then we would put it in a hole and burn it. That was what had been done for years. And we didn't like that one little bit for a whole host of reasons. And least of which is we were burning it, smoke, all the dramas. The new system... We've just emptied one of the tanks, and we didn't have to use shovels because it was such a small volume of it, just using a sludge pump after 10 years. And so we just send it off. We just put into IBCs and send it off. It wasn't hard to deal with it. And we think now we've worked out, because the guy who helped us design it said, you'll never have to dig malarkey out. And, and we were hoping that was the case, but we did. So we said, okay, this is where I mean about, oh, well, we've just got to keep adjusting and getting better. So we, we've now put a, another pre-tank in, which means we've got even more process at that point. So we should hopefully never have to, or well, the volume of it is so small as to, in, you know, just to be not really relevant to the question. So that's power, water, waste. But then our food scraps, on all our waste food, because we needed soil, to plant our new trees, our new vegetation. And the island was a windswept barren rock. Where are you going to get soil from? If you bring it in, you've got a quarantine issue. Who knows what bugs and beetles you're going to bring in? We had all this food scrap. So a pretty simple collaboration was, let's put it through mm. a composter. We had all this cardboard we, they had initially, when we took over, they were burning. We stopped burning and started flying it off. We're still a cost. Then we said, okay, well, why don't we just mulch it up, put it with the food scrap and compost it? Long story short, that's what we do. We have a big eight-metre-long composter. All our food every day and all that cardboard gets mulched up, goes into this thing, but every two weeks it comes out at the back end. It just conti it's continually coming yeah. out all the time. Then it goes into a windrow where it's turned. Its temperature goes up to about 75 degrees. It turns. We then slowly put wood chip in from some of the old dead trees and green mulch and stuff and turn it. And after about six months, it's the most magnificent black soil that we use to plant wow. our trees. And it's nature giving it to us from our food scraps. So no longer, because the food scraps prior to that yeah. were buried in a pit in the ground and covered in lime. Can you imagine? In a, in a spectacularly beautiful thing like the island was. So we don't yeah. do that anymore. So that's just another one. And I, I could keep going on of the Please things do. that we do. You go on for as long you know, as you want, mate. <laughs> so our glass bottles, you know, our glass bottles used to all go off and and get yeah. recycled and um and that was quite a big effort because we went from 12 barges a year to four barges a year so you were collecting it up and you had big amounts of it so we got a, a thing called an oppressor a glass oppressor it's like a crusher only better and it turns the glass back into the sand it crushes it right down to the sand it came from and if you're on a continental island or a rock island you could then just yeah. spread it on the beach we don't because we're on a coral cay but ours goes off but a you can get about 120 bottles in a 20-litre container. So you shrink it and then it gets sent off and then it gets melted down and recycled yeah. very easily. Um, that type of thing is what we do. We, we, um, we have, as I said, desal water for our washing and showering. But now we've got these things called source hydro panels. 
and they're they're about a metre and a half wide by about a metre high and they've got a, a, a photovoltaic PV panel in the middle. Fresh air comes through them and fresh air has a, a, is relative humidity. It has an element of yeah. moisture in it. And with this panel heating in the sun and then this fresh air coming and cooling, you get condensation. So the condensation dribbles down, the system speeds that condensation process up. The little PV panel then pumps it up to a tap and you get the most beautiful, clear, fresh drinking water. It's like rainwater. And we get about six litres of water per day out of each of these panels. We've got eight of them and that's what our crew drink. And that was given to us by Source Hydro Panels in Arizona when they saw our solar power station and saw some of the media that we'd been given over that. And they said, can we give you these? Can you have a look at them? And we'll try them. And we did. And then one of my friends came out and saw these things went, wow, man, they are really good for my brothers and sisters. He, he's in, in our Indigenous community, our Aboriginal community. And, and he went and told the people that matter about, we could put these things on mm. roofs of our houses out in the West where it's really dry. And, and they have, and they've sold a whole bunch of these things. So we keep getting rewards, and people keep learning and, and, and collaborating because of some of the things we're oh, doing. Get, get the girls to send me the links to all this kind of stuff, mate, because I'd love to chuck it on the podcast as well, put it in the show notes. There's bound to be people that are keen on them. Yeah. Oh, they're awesome. And they're, they're about 3000 Australian dollars. You can put one on the roof of your house, and it just sits up on the roof, and a little tap comes down to your sink, and you get this magnificent, clean, fresh like rainwater, drinking water, six or eight litres a day. You don't have to have a tank. It's not using. It's not plugged into the grid. Yeah. It's just free. It's running power and water out of the sky. Awesome. It's just crazy. And, of course, I see that and think this is, you know, first or second generation of this stuff. What's it going to be like in 20 or 30 years when they've really yeah. refined it and really got it going? So the more of us use that stuff in the early days, the better it will get and the, and the cheaper it will get. As we I'll tell you what, mate. If I end up, if I end up buying the place, in, the dive shop in Indonesia, I'll have a couple of those things for on the roof because that would be fantastic. Rather than going down awesome. to the 7-Elevens really and having to buy big containers of water all the time. And that was one of the things we did. I'm sitting here in this very desk back in about 06 or 07 and we sold water in yeah. plastic bottles like yeah. everyone did, you know, 600 mil bottles and we sold them. We'd take them out in the aeroplane. It was heavy and we flew them out and then, of course, people would drink it and then they had this throwaway plastic bottle. And one of my staff came to me, dear Angie, and she said to me, Pete, I've got an idea. We've got to stop selling water in plastic bottles. I've gone, oh, how are we going to do that? She said, oh, I found this company. We can buy these stainless steel ones for $10 or these reusable, you know, they're a form of plastic with a, we can put our logo on them and people can keep reusing them. And they're about $3. And so people are buying a bottle of water for about 3 or $4 and then they throw it away. They can buy this and they can fill them up with the D-cell. And now, of course, they fill them up with our source. She said, I can buy, she was talking about $2,000 worth. And I'm going, oh, we didn't have a spare $2,000. But I thought, I couldn't, I couldn't hose off her enthusiasm. I said, right, mate, go and get them and let's give it a go. So she stripped all the plastic bottles out of the fridge. There's none of those. There's only this stuff. And if you want to drink water at Lady Elliot, you buy one of these and you can go and fill it up at the D-cell. And people loved it. And all of a sudden, I've got the media on the phone to me. Are you the first bloke in Australia to stop selling plastic water <laughs> on the Great Barrier Reef? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, I was, yeah. They've told the story. I got thousands of dollars worth of publicity. We paid two and a half grand for the bottles, which we probably sold for five yeah. grand. You know how it is with retail. So, we, you know, we got our money back. And the bottle that they bought had Lady Elliot on it. So they took it home very proudly and they're telling their friends, I've been to Lady Elliot and they don't sell plastic bottles. And, and the ones who had a bit more money, they bought a stainless steel one. And people have still got those bottles they bought all those years ago. 
And so now that's all we sell. And that's and so now you can go and fill your bottle on the source hydro panel, which is even better than the desal water to drink. And we don't have to fly water out there, so we don't have to carry it. Oh, you know brilliant. what I'm getting at? <laughs> and that was someone else's idea that came to me, and I've gone, yeah, I like that. That'll do. You have a Collaboration. Go. <laughs> give it a go. Collaboration, yeah, yeah. Give it a crack. Let's try it. And it just made sense. Um, yeah, that, that's the sorts of things that you'll see happening all the time. And, um, you know, even in our food, like we used to get little jams in those silly little plastic jam things and butters in those silly little butter things. And my team were always on my back, oh, we got to stop this because, of course, what was happening is those little plastic and silver metal things were ending up in our food scraps, which was ending up in our composter, which was ending up in our dirt. Okay, it's not the end of the world, but we were finding them. And, and so we had to stop. Mm. How are we going to stop it? So we found mm. these squeeze things, and you could get the jam in bulk and put it in, and, and you could squeeze the jam out. Then we found a way to just cut the butter and put it in a, in a little, I've got a little fridge, and then people could just take a butter with the knife, which was great. And we were just proud of ourselves till COVID hit. Then we weren't allowed to do that. So we had to go backwards yeah. to those old plastic single-use things again. It was like, oh, we just felt like dinosaurs yeah. again. And now we're out of COVID and now we're just getting back to where we were with different ways. And you've got to experiment. I, I just say to people all the time, look, your place is different to my place because we do try and encourage other resorts, other islands, other operators. They don't have to be on the reef. You can be out in the bush. You know, We do a lot with Outback Queensland and Outback Australia. Look at what you do and look at how you do it and just ask yourself the question, how is this going to affect me financially, but how is this going to affect the environment? And, and when you weigh those two up, nearly always the environment yeah. wins, nearly yeah. always the environment wins, and, and then quite often it's actually cheaper. And almost certainly you're going to get all this, what I call intangible publicity for what you've done. And so it pays back yeah. in spades. Yeah, for sure. What about the – you must have a, an element of, of waste that, that has to be shipped off. I mean, the, you know, your, your packaging, your containers, your, your baked bean tins, those kind of things. Uh, there's got to be those elements that you can't yep. get around really, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. We, so our, our cardboard goes into our food scraps. Yeah. As I've said, our food scraps goes into our dirt. So that's all managed. So this, that's, that's a major portion of it. No plastic bottles. Um, so that's another one. Glass goes into – crushed down or oppressed down to sand which goes back and gets melted so really the last one is what you said what we call the heavy materials the heavy building materials and the heavy stuff so we store those into big bins and every three months they go back to be recycled in some manner we recycle as best as we can but obviously we can't keep all that stuff on a tiny little hundred acre island so it goes off and has to be dealt with on the mainland as best as possible and um and 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 that's what we do there um yeah i think that probably answers that one it's it's every three months yeah there's going to be elements you can't get around isn't there i mean you can't make heinz baked beans come in something that's not a tin unfortunately not yet no you can't no you can't um but we do crush the cans we have a little crush and we crush them so they fit and then you'll send them off and they'll get recycled you get paid a small amount of money for them but it's all contributing to the big cause you know so what's it and and again that's a balance of way up between how much does it cost for a person to be squeezing them how much per hour compared to what you're getting and the space that they take up on the barge there's not really a space issue so there's there's a, you, you're always doing what I said, weighing up, how much is this going to cost me? How much? What's it doing for the environment? Is it worth spending my time and money here? Am I better spend it here? I call it the low-hanging fruit. Look at what you're doing 
and go, what can I do now and quickly yeah. to get a result? That's a low-hanging fruit. Let's grab that one and do that. Like, even if it's light bulbs, get hold of that 100-watt bulb and get rid of that or that 500-watt bulb rather than that little 20-watt mm. one, you know. That, that's the one you really need to yeah. deal with first. What's it, um, with, with all this, like, mini-industry that you've got going on on the island, what's it like for noise? How do you... Uh, have you got to try and control the noise pollution, as it were, in any way? Oh, mate, I'm really proud to say that the noise, the biggest noise was the yeah. generators. And you know, I could hear them when I was out snorkeling or diving. I could, I could tell when the generator had stopped. I'd come to the surface and I'd hear <laughs> it from hundreds of metres away and go, bloody generators stop, what's going on? But now the generators run mm. so rarely, there's no noise from... And that was the noise maker, was the power mm. supply. That was a noise maker. Yeah, you can put them in a little tight shed and quieten them down, but it was still noisy. The only other thing for us that makes noise is our desal, but it's it, it's not really noisy. You can stand near it all day really? long. It's not too bad. And, of course, our dive compressors. So we run Bauer Mariner yep. 320s. We've got two of those little little darlings, and they work beautifully, and we're, we're looking into the 320E, which is a nitrox compressor, because we've got an older style of nitrox compressor that runs with um, a diesel motor, and we want to be rid of that. So we're looking at a 320E. So we'll have three bowers. Um, you yeah. know them, I'm sure. So you know what I'm talking about. They're a little bit noisy when they're working, but they're in the shed. We run them when there's sun. We call it no sun, no power. You know, no, no, no sun, no water, and no sun, no air. When the sun's out, bang, that's when we're running and making stuff. And we bank them. We've got it all into banks. So they're not happening at night. So guests aren't hearing generators, desalinators, dive compressors at night. It's all happening during the day when they're out snorkeling or diving anyway. But that's not a lot of noise. We had a, and here's again just more things, we had a a gator, uh, one of those John Deere gators that run around and picked up people's bags and dropped them off around the resort. Little diesel motor, great little thing, but noisy (laughs) and burning diesel. So... Someone did some research. One of the team and said to me, Pete, we, we need a new gator. It was 25,000 or something. We've just discovered Polaris have now got an all-electric thing that's like the gator. It was 22,000. So, well, decision, what's it do for the environment? What's it do financially? That was a really easy decision. So we bought this Polaris, and best thing we ever bought. got big suspension. It's comfy. It's quite... You yeah. don't even hear it coming. <laughs> you now have people saying, oh, I didn't hear the Polaris. They nearly yeah. ran me over. So now we're headed, because we've got two diesel-powered... Um, loaders, big loaders that turn the soil and do the things we need to do and digging the holes. So we've got, and they're, they're quite powerful machines and quite heavy machines and they run on diesel. And, and Volvo now make an, an electric or battery-powered loader. So I've been pounding at Volvo trying to get them to assist us to buy what we hope will be the first or one of the first battery-powered Volvo loaders in the country. And, and then we can pension off the old diesels and get rid of them, you know. And, and then, then the load is quiet because it, it's not noisy, but it's yeah. not quiet either, you know what I mean? Like, it's a machine. And we use it sensibly as much as we can. But, look, I, you know, I, I don't think noise is, would be considered yeah. a factor out there. I think it's generally pretty quiet. And when it's windy, there's noise of the wind in the trees. <laughs> so It sounds like you got it all nailed, but does that? I can tell there's just those little itches with you every now and then. You just mentioned the loader there. You can see it when you're talking about it. It's a little itch. little itch. I've got to get rid of that. Yeah. I've got to do this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it never stops. Our aeroplanes, I mean, I'm really proud of this one. We A couple of blokes came and saw me about seven or eight years ago. They were just setting up a company. They'd been supported by a, a, a philanthropist that cared about the environment. 
and wanted to make money, and he had a lot of money, and he was investing in an electric airplane. And they made a decision that the first airplane they were going to put this electric motor in was a Cessna Caravan. And we just happened to have Cessna Caravans. We have, currently we have five of them. And there's a big reason we have caravans, besides the fact they're a fantastic aeroplane and they're very reliable. They're also very capital intensive. They're an expensive machine. But they are a single engine turboprop. So a very reliable engine, very easy engine to operate. But one engine, 14 seats, means that my fuel burn per passenger seat mile yeah. is unbeatable. There's no other aeroplane that can do what we do and land on that little short island and burn the least amount of fuel per passenger seat mile. So we offset our, we carbon offset all our passengers. We, we contribute a couple of dollars per seat per trip for that. And that goes to Greenfleet and they plant trees with it. But we want to stop burning bloody jet fuel. We want to stop burning fuel in any way we can. So when these guys came and said, oh, we want to do this, can you support us? It was like, yep, you came to the right place. Because <laughs> I said, by the time I'm 65, I want to fly an all-electric aeroplane from Harvey Bay to Lady Elliot, and we're all going to work together on it. So we threw ourselves at it, and my engineers here, my aircraft engineers loved it, and they supported it, and we worked with them for about five years. The company's called Magniix. You want to Google them and have a look, M-A-G-N-I slash X, Magniix. They started here at Arundel on the Gold Coast, and... Um, they designed and built what was initially a 375 horsepower engine. They got it working, put it in the big Ironbird, which we assisted them to build. An Ironbird is just a dummy aeroplane where you just run the engine and you run it for hours and hours and hours and make sure it's going to last. And then they doubled it and made it 750 because that's what we needed yep. for the caravan. And they ran thousands of hours and we supported them as much as we could, not financially because we didn't have that money, with knowledge and collaboration, with ideas. We're the aeroplane people, they're the engineers, they're the designers, they're the clever guys with that stuff. So we helped Magnix and I kept saying to Roy and, and um, Bob and the team, in this country we're pretty heavily regulated with bureaucracy. You, you, what you don't want is to have a, what I used the example, is you don't want to have a Hindenburg situation with your first electric aeroplane. You want it to be a success and you want, to, you want to have a bit of in the back sleeve. So you want to put this engine in a float plane and fly it for a while off the water so that if there's a problem, and there shouldn't be, but if there is, you just yeah. put back on the water and there's no problem. There's no media, there's no headache. It's happened. And, of course, they couldn't get support in Australia for that. So, sadly, they took the whole project over to the USA, to Seattle, the land of what I call the land of can-do. Here in Australia, with that sort of project, it's yeah. the land of can't do. They just wouldn't help them. So Magnix went to Seattle, and if you do your history, you'll see that the first engine went into a float plane with Greg McDougall from Harbour Air in Vancouver, and he flew it off the river, and he flew it, and he landed it, and that was the first electric passenger-sized airplane. It was an old yeah. de Havilland Beaver, an eight-seat airplane, and Greg threw a lot of time and effort into it. The Harbour Air family put that together. And, um, and then, of course... That then went, the engine was good enough, they put it into a Cessna caravan, which is where they mm -hmm. wanted it to be, and then they fly that out of Moses Lake <clears throat> over there in, in, um, in Seattle, or, sorry, in, in Washington State, should I say, and that caravan is now doing up to 40 minutes in the sky and going up to 10,000 feet, which is great, and it's running on batteries, but the problem is in all these years, we've gone from 30 to 35 minutes, Pete, to oh, maybe 35 to 40 minutes, Pete, and well, that's not enough to get to Lady no. Elliot. I need a bit more than that from the point of view of I want to have enough to get back home if we can't land. So the batteries hold them up, but the machine is flying, the engine is working. They're now in the USA. They've got some tremendous support. They're putting that very engine into a lot of different types. There's so much money going into that, but they've gravitated away from the battery power 
because it's just struggling to give us enough time. And now they're pushing, and Bob and the guys here, Stralis in Cairns, and, and the guys down in Sydney, um, are now working on hydrogen power to drive okay. the same engine, hydrogen yeah. and electric. And I think that's where it's going to go. And I, I'm still hopeful that before I'm 65, there's going to be one that's going to have that much range. I'm going to fly it across the island, but it's probably going to be hydrogen powered initially. And of course, that means we're not burning well, jet I mean, fuel. It, it, but that's not yeah, there yet. It, make, it makes sense to have something that's hybrid. I mean, it's going to rely purely on batteries. You know, you're only going to have a battery failure, and that's it. You're, you're back on the water, aren't you? So the, the hydrogen is the long term yeah. answer, yeah. I think for the time being, and as you said, hybrid. You know, you go and look at what Airbus are doing. They're working with hydrogen and, and hybrid. So I, I think what Airbus and those big airlines will do, because it's in their best interest too to look mm -hmm. after the environment, is they'll have jet fuel and jet mm -hmm. engines here, and then next to it will be an electric engine. They'll use the, the, the diesel, you know, the jet fuel to get them up to altitude. Then they'll close that throttle, push that one up, and then they'll run on their hydrogen or their battery or their solar power for the cruise and the descent, which will rapidly, like what happened to me with my power station, rapidly drop yeah. their fuel use over the sector. And, and then, of course, then we'll learn. There'll be mistakes, there'll be good things, bad things, we'll get better. So over the next 10 years, we're in for some really exciting times because aviation, mate, we, we love to travel. Yeah. We humans have always loved to travel, haven't we? Ever since we walked out of Africa, that great rift valley, yeah. we've been travelling and finding ways to do it. And, hey, without aeroplanes, Africa wouldn't have that last great animal migration in the Maasai. You know, it's the people coming over there with the cameras that have saved those animals yeah. from poachers. So aeroplanes play a part. And so we've got to do part. it better. And, and and, and big, as, as big, you know, I mean, part. I'm just thinking to that um, kind of a, a description that you put there with the aircraft taking off on, on fuel and then moving over to hydrogen and back on the fuel for the landing. Can you just imagine the amount of uh, fuel um, or damage to the environment is going to be minimised just just because of not having to dump fuel coming into land? Uh, for, those, for those people who are listening and, and you know, that don't know about aircraft passenger aircraft if they're if they've got excess fuel when they're going to land they're effectively going to be heavily weighted on on landing so it is pretty commonplace for for fuel to be dumped before coming into land yeah airlines are pretty good they do try hard and they're, and they're trying you know with these new sustainable aviation fuels because aviation has led us for 110 mm. or more years they've led us enormously in development and so you know, Richard Branson and those sort of guys, they're entrepreneurs, those forward visionary thinkers. They're out there and there's lots of them out there trying to make this breakthrough. And we've played our tiny part and others are playing it because yeah, that's the other part of my business is our aviation business that, that we're really working hard on finding ways and supporting whomever we can in whatever way we can to come up with a better way of it's, doing it. And, and, and that becomes the culture in my whole organisation. All my people, all our people... In our DNA, we say it's about saving the environment in any way we can, minimising waste. You know, I have this. I get a bit passionate, but I say waste is the enemy. I learned that when I was racing motorbikes. I can't waste a second or an, of energy or time. And, and waste, you know, we think of waste, we think of rubbish. Yep, rubbish is the enemy, but so too is waste of resources mm -hmm. and time. And I say this, to, I'll say this to people who don't believe in climate change. Okay, you don't believe in climate change. I'm not going to argue with you because it's pretty hard for me to prove otherwise. So, so why burn coal when we don't need to? 
I'm getting all my power out on the island from the sun for free, so why not leave the coal in the ground? Forget the climate change question, just leave it there. Get your power from the sun for free if you can, because our kids, or their kids in 50 years, they might need the coal for something we haven't even thought of yet. So why waste it if we don't need to waste it? No matter what your opinion is, why not? I look and go, why wouldn't I do this? Saving money, leaving the coal or the fuel in the ground if I can, and, and nothing is going to happen overnight. You know, we were, if we were here burning all this coal, fuel, gas, we want to be here burning nothing, but financially we've yeah. got to get there. It's a transition. It's a transitionary period, and whether we like it or not, whether it's five years or 50 years, it's a period and we've got to get there, and the quicker we can do it, the better. But we have to also be financially sustainable while we're doing it, yeah. you know. So, I mean, it's it's fair to say. I mean, we've come a, an awful long way since the. I mean, I'm just thinking back to the the 70s and 80s, where you know we just burnt the shit out of everything. Um, you know, just just 40 years has been a, a, a huge uh, benefit to yep. to the earth. So I can only imagine what it's going to be like you in 40 years from now. You know, read that lady, the most amazing lady, mm. Jane Goodall. She talks about the four reasons for hope. And, and I mean, if you haven't heard them, they're just amazing. And she's such an inspirational lady. I had the great fortune of meeting with her. I'm good friends with the Irwin family. And she came out and presented at um, Australia Zoo. She talks about them, and, and, I, and I just come out of my head here. But one of them is, of course, the brilliance of young people, young people's brilliant minds, the, the, the ambition of young people looking forward to what they want to do and be in their life, the, the resilience, the remarkable resilience of nature. And the brilliance of the human mind, I'm pretty sure that's the four. The brilliance of the human mind. We've all got one. You've got one. We've all got this mind, but let's use it. Let's not sit there fat, mm. dumb and happy. Let's use it and, and use it to the best of our ability. And, and that lady is an inspiration. She actually's thrown a fifth one in. And, uh, and she now says there's a fifth reason for hope. She said it's the power of social yeah. media. And, and when she first said it, I was 100 mile an hour behind her, but I've seen some terrible things happening on social media in recent times of people running each other down, and I sometimes wonder. But ultimately, she's right. The power of social media is fantastic because it gives everybody a voice and gives everybody the ability to learn and hear. It's a lot harder to bullshit yeah. to us now. You know, c- corrupt governments and corrupt people, it's a lot harder to bullshit to us when you've got this amazing tool called social media. You can get out your story, and it's been a big advantage for us on Lady Illit because we were just a little place, didn't have much money. And when we put our social media in, and my daughters started putting up our just genuine photos of what people... This is what Dad snorkeled with today, or this is what Auntie Jenny snorkeled with yesterday. People go, what? Is that... Oh, I'm going there. And it cost us nothing to do it. So social media was a tremendous help for us, because Auntie Jenny's in London, and she's just seen what I'm doing two hours ago, and I see that on social media, and I go, wow, how powerful is that? A fair income photo, showing them what we really are, not dressed up with all colour, what do you call it, some colour matching, or you know, you know what I mean, photo, photo shopping yeah. and stuff. We, you know, we just show photos as they are, yeah. Lady Elliot, you know, warts and all, including great white sharks, which we see now and again. Yeah. We'll post them because we say, these are the animals you're likely to see here, and we try not to hide it. There's no secrets. That's the animal someone swam yeah. with yesterday <laughs> or saw in the water, and so. You know, it's it's, it's, it's got to be done. It, it, it's got a, it, the education that comes from. Uh, well, look, I'm I'm not massively brilliant when it comes to reading. In fact, I can quite easily say that I hate reading. I find it boring. But if you give me an image or a video, and it and it's of interest, then it it has my undivided attention. 
And there's a chap down in Bondi that flies his uh, drone all the time. And I think the education that's coming out of him, sitting out there with his deck chair, talking about the water and showing some sharks and showing, showing the interaction of sharks with surfers is just the education element to it is fantastic. You know, you you bring in all these people who've got that access to information online now, like you say, social media, they see that. And that fear that we had in the, in the eighties and nineties from shark movies like Jaws, it kind of gets diluted somewhat when you see the reality of, of what's being displayed on social media now. Yeah, and that was the power of Steve Irwin, and, I, and I'm really proud to say he and I were good friends, an amazing individual, and he could tell yeah. a story. He could get in there and tell a story, and he reached millions of people, millions of young people, like kids today still tell Steve's story, and still, and he reached them and made them into mm. wildlife warriors. He was able to tell a story, and his son, Robert, amazing young man, he's doing the same thing as you're talking about with his camera. He tells a story yeah. with his camera, and... And, and I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here. I'm going to tell you what I think about a bit of a story. The oldest living society, the oldest living culture on this planet today, unbroken culture, is here mm-hmm. in Australia, and it's the Australian yeah. Aboriginal. They've been on this planet for something like 50,000 years, maybe even 60,000 years. Long time. Unbroken, right? They go and show me their books. They don't have any. They don't write. Well, they didn't in those days. They didn't have the written word. What they had was storytelling. Mm-hmm. And they carried their stories so well. And then artwork, they would paint pictures, visual and storytelling. And this is an amazing thing because we Europeans went down this bureaucratic road of writing. And that worked for some, but others it didn't work for. And and mostly young boys aren't really big on that stuff. They want to be out there touching and feeling and telling stories and spinning yarns and drawing pictures which is where the Aboriginal people were. So we've got a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters that have been here for 50 or 60,000 years. And I think we slowly are learning that. And I'm proud to think yeah. that we are because as they can learn some things off us, we can learn some things off them. And that written word did a lot of good for us, but it created a lot of lawyers and challenges. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, oh, man, you know, how far do we go with this bureaucratic stuff? You yeah. know, so anyway... That's my little bit of a. We're, story we're on the on same part, mate. I'm I'm more than happy for hearing and seeing rather than bloody reading. You can shove that right out the window. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I, I don't mind reading. I actually do enjoy reading, in fact. But but I can. I'm probably very fortunate like that. But I can. I see so many good mates that just don't don't get it. And and I'm a visual. I gotta see a picture. Someone will sit there and start telling me something. I go, hang on, hang on, stop, stop, stop. Get the paper. Yep. Draw me a picture. Righto. Yep. We're gonna. This is how we're gonna do it. Yep. Righto. That's the engineering bit of my brain. Righto. Got that done. And the plans in yep. here, and we're off. You know, drawing that yep. picture. <laughs> <laughs> I just heard an airplane come home, mate. It just come back. Ah, uh, right. Well, I tell you what, we can sign off on that note. Um, yeah. Well, what do you we, reckon? We've been going for nearly two hours, mate. By the crikey, yeah. we have too. Jeez, top look at that, that is. Play four o'clock, <laughs> mate. You're a you're a you're a good you're a good uh, interviewer. You're a good bloke to be doing a podcast. Oh. I've really enjoyed this. I hope I've, hope I've given you some mate, good. Mate, I could answers. do another two hours easily, but my my bladder won't let me. <laughs> <laughs> How did you guess? I got Amy to get me some water before I had to stop. <laughs> oh, it's funny, isn't it? Oh. Just don't do it in oh, your wetsuit. Yeah. Well, at least rinse it out afterwards. <laughs> we're going too far now mate we're off the edge (laughs) happy days mate it's been an absolute 
absolute pleasure and i'm 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 in awe of what you're doing up there so um you know i look forward to the day of meeting you in person having a beer and just having a wander around the place and and, and seeing it with my own eyes get that picture yeah thanks mate thanks matt i really and i'm looking forward to sharing it with you and i'm in i'm in awe of what you do and and people like you because this is collaboration i can't get my message out without guys like yourself that have gone out there on a limb and busted your butt and you're getting that story told you're sharing these stories of different people out there all having their go at, at making a difference great fun for diving we all love our diving but we're going into the natural environment, and, and that's what's so thrilling about our diving. That's why we love putting a tank on our back, getting down there, having a look at the fish face-to-face, feeling it, and you're telling that story, mate. You're getting it out there for, for, for Fred and Bill and Joan and Jack to come and enjoy it. doesn't matter whether it's Lady Elliot or wherever it might be, you know. It's getting it out. So thanks oh, for your help, mate. Eh? I really enjoy it. And, um, yeah, on that note, Let's go and empty our bladders in different toilets. <laughs> Good on you, Take mate. Take it easy. Cheers, Matt. And thanks, thanks for guys. listening, guys. I hope you Bye for it. now. This is Scuba Go Go Under the Sea, the podcast for the inquisitive diver.